0: Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Fallon. Thanks for listening. This episode is supported by the podcast host. So if you're thinking of using a podcast as a tool in your freelance business, as part of your marketing, or just for fun, there's maybe a side project you're doing, do check them out. They've got all the resources you might need. The podcast host you can find details at beingfreelance.com. Right now, though, let's find out what it's like being freelance for illustrator Kyle Webster
1: had this light bulb go off and thought okay you know i i need to be more than an illustrator i need to be something that's just I, I want i want to create stuff reaching a much larger audience than who i was reaching when i was just drawing pictures for money you know you may already be an expert at something and not realize it I'm like an accidental expert i'm thinking always what's going to happen five years from now where are things moving and i'm trying to always sort of look into the future a little bit and I think just having that mentality that is helpful for a freelancer to not rest on your laurels. If business is really good, then it's safe to assume that that could change.
0: Man, you're in for uh, a treat. You may have already seen how long this episode is, which is much longer than the normal. But I thought about cutting it down and I thought, do you know what, that would be a disservice to you because Kyle's story is so interesting in the twists and turns that it has taken, the lessons that he's learned. And I know that whatever you do, whether you're an illustrator or not, uh, you're going to get tons out of it. So I will keep this bit brief just as ever to remind you to go to beingfreelance.com. Right, let's crack on. And let's say hello to Kyle Webster, freelance illustrator somewhere near New York in the States. Hi, Kyle. Hello. How are you? I am good. But I'm intrigued because we've already, before we started, ended up having a discussion whether or not to call you a freelance illustrator, which is interesting because you're an international award-winning illustrator. It says right there on your website. <laughs> so um, let's, let's find out how you've ended up in the dilemma of whether to even call yourself that anymore. How, how did you get started
1: being freelance? I got started when I still had a full-time job um, working in the evenings on building up a small client base of what are called alternative news weeklies here in the States, which are these um, weekly newspapers that are free, And uh, they have a small budget to pay illustrators to illustrate a few stories here and there, every issue. Um, And it's usually things like local politics or maybe some strange local story, something bizarre that's happened that would be better suited for an illustrator to handle. than, Or they don't have any photo reference and things like that. So um, there are lots of them all over the country, maybe about 100. And so all I had to do was, you know, get five or 10 of them to give me some work every week. And I was quickly able to build up a little client base. So when I had enough income coming in, um, you know, from that, I decided to send some work around to some larger publications. And after another year or two of that, I had enough work coming in that I could quit my design design job. I was a designer at a graphic design agency. And so that was back in 2000. I quit my job in 2006. I'd started the freelance thing. Uh, in 2003.
0: So you start off with the newspaper journey. Where where did you go from there?
1: Let's see. So um, I went in baby steps. I then sent work to city magazines. They have a better budget, but they're still not huge, you know. And then from there, I started to send out work to national publications. And I started with more sort of trade publications that people maybe aren't so familiar with but eventually worked my way up to things like um, Entertainment Weekly and The New Yorker and so on. And then it was pretty, I was getting enough work. You know, I felt pretty confident that I could get out from there and I quit my job. And quitting your job is always a good thing to do if you want to freelance because it puts a lot of pressure on you to take it a step farther and really make it work. So it was a good thing.
0: How did you go about approaching those places?
1: Let's see, this was, you know, more than 10 years ago, so at the time, um, emailing somebody cold wasn't such a bad thing. It wasn't really an irritant. Um, I think now it's, it's harder. It's getting harder, I think, to contact art directors via email directly because they get so much of it that it's a bit of a nuisance. Um, but at the time it wasn't such a big deal to track them down, uh, track down their email addresses rather. Sorry. I don't want to sound like a stalker. Um, (laughs) and I would, uh, I'd find out what the contact information was either by simply calling the newspaper and asking for it or by looking at a masthead or things like that. Um, And then just send an email and say, you know, very briefly, this is who I am and I'd love to work with you and here are some samples of work and here's my website and just leaving it open. And uh, fortunately, a lot of them like what they saw and I got hired. So um, I think cold calling is something as well. That's a little bit of an art form that freelancers should work on. I did a lot of that with the larger publications. Rather than emailing them, I would actually call them directly in their offices and introduce myself and then say I wanted to send them an email. It's kind of a, as a stepping stone towards um, sending them an actual email. I would call first. I guess it was a courtesy thing, and most of the time that worked. I'm not sure if that still works. Um, maybe, it's kind of, maybe it's kind of a treat for art directors to get a voice rather than something electronic. I don't know.
0: You might well be right. Like you say, they've gotten so many emails, at least if they know, oh, I've already spoken to Carl. Uh, and then it, when it does appear in their inbox, it's already going to stand out. Yeah. So that took you up to national level magazines and what have you. And so what kind of year is that then?
1: So um, that was about four years into starting, uh, you know, yeah. so maybe 2007 or so. Then I was doing things for national magazines and newspapers and by that point, I was also starting to slowly expand into doing advertising and um, a tiny bit of book work, though not much. But, you know, and, and book work has never been something I've done much of. Um, I just haven't spent time marketing to those art directors and those publishing houses. But, um, but the advertising work I found to be a great thing because the budgets were usually significantly larger. And um, the way I did that was. By first working for the company that, that I quit, my you know, I left on good terms and I continued to work with them on some projects and then slowly visiting other agencies that were within driving distance and showing them my work and getting some small projects here and there. And then eventually uh, entering work into competitions like communication arts and how and things like that and um, getting on the radar of uh, agencies all over the country and slowly doing some more work that way so um i don't remember actually ever directly contacting any uh art directors or creative directors at agencies um outside of my region but uh they i think they found me mostly through those annuals or through my website or through blogs and things like that um i've always had a very active online presence as much as i could manage anyway and that really helps
0: did it feel like there was a point where perhaps it started to snowball
1: yeah, um, The New Yorker was sort of a tipping point. The New Yorker and The New York Times, because those are publications that other art directors pay attention to in New York, once I was published in The New Yorker, I had a flood of jobs come in, and that continued to happen every time I was published again in that specific publication. If I was in The New Yorker, I could kind of assume I would get some work you know, over the next few weeks potentially from people I'd never worked with and also from people who just remembered, Oh yeah, there's Kyle again. I should hire him again, you know, and the New York times is kind of good that way as well. And also I just think, you know, I hate to say it, but there's something about those names. I'm not sure if this is still true, but I think it is. I assume it's still true that if you can say, Oh yeah, I illustrate regularly for the New Yorker. It, it adds a little something to the equation that makes you um, somebody that other people want to work with Mm. um i guess it makes you it it somehow validates you i don't know i I don't think there's any getting around that it it does certainly help for sure there's got to be that uh, prestige uh, attached to it i think so
0: i mean before we kind of continue on your 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 story i guess as to where where you are today and the dilemma you're in you you mentioned just to pick up on a couple of bits you mentioned you know, your online presence and how you've always sort of been strong with that. Is that mainly through a portfolio site or through
1: social media or a combination or what? I've always struggled to keep my portfolio up to date. Um, And I I know lots of other friends of mine have the same problem. They say, oh, I'm going to do it now. This this is the time I'm really going to have this new site. It's very (laughs) easy to update and I'm definitely going to keep it updated. And then, of course, it doesn't happen. So, I found that um, you know there was a period of time where my blog was the best place to do that, and I got semi-regular traffic to it, and people kind of expected to see work there. Um, but lately, I found that Instagram and Twitter are the places for me to just post new work and get at least, from what I can see, the the biggest response to it. The times I hear people reference my actual website are usually when I've never worked with them before and somehow they've arrived at my site and they've seen something they liked and they reference a specific piece usually from the portfolio. But the way I sort of stay out there with current work is through Twitter and Instagram and really Twitter more than Instagram because Instagram, I kind of post everything. I just sort of post sketches and doodles and experiments and I guess the portfolio is kind of this place where I'm really selective and just try and put together the best representation of some of my best work. You know, when you get to a point where you've been illustrating regularly on and off, what, 12 years? I can't do math. Um, (laughs) 12 or 13 years, um, you have over a 1,000 jobs you've done for clients. It gets hard to even whittle down to – even 50 pieces that you like, you want to include more, but I'm also somebody who has this added, some would call it a problem, but I call it a strength, which is that I work in so many different styles that when I put together a portfolio of work, I I've given up trying to categorize, you know, this style, that style. I just throw everything in there that I think is just something I did well.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. And you mentioned competitions as
1: well. It's, it's something I do out of habit. I, and I, I, I can't speak for everyone out there. I know that most people who are my age or older, we do this every year just as sort of a ritual because we were kind of programmed to do it and told that that's how you get your work out there and get it the kind of recognition it deserves if it does deserve that recognition. Um,
0: oh, right, like a thing from art college or whatever it might have been, that sort of...
1: Yeah, and just this... I think it, it, if if you could... There used to be this badge of honour that, you know, if it's said on your website... Uh, Kyle's work has been recognized by the Society of Illustrators and Communication Arts and so on. Um I still think that has some meaning. I'm not sure if that meaning is as great as it once was or as important as it once was. I, I honestly don't know. But um so I think just out of habit I do it every year and I still have it's a good feeling to get in. It's a nice feeling to go to these parties and meet people and hang out with people you already know. And um, you just feel good that your work is on the wall and gets in the book. These days, it's hard for for me to say if, like, for example, to younger illustrators out there, if they're curious about it, it's very hard for me to say whether or not actually getting printed in the Communication Arts Annual or in the Society of Illustrators book or American Illustration Annual. I, I don't know if that matters that much to art directors or if they even look at those publications as much as they now just simply surf the web like the rest of us. But I I think they have value and worth and I like them and I just really like looking through them at the end of a year and seeing a nice collection of work, you know, the what is considered to be the best of the year um in the eyes of whatever seven people that look at it when they're <laughs> judging it, but um
0: But you felt like it had it it would um it would boost your confidence, I guess.
1: Definitely boost your confidence. And you know, early on when I was in communication arts, it did it did help me to get in front of some art directors at advertising agencies who I'd never heard of, you know.
0: Um, Okay, so back into your story, and you're now working for ad agencies and stuff. So what happened next?
1: Yeah, so I had a baby with my wife. We had uh, our first child, a daughter, and we had decided she would stay home and and raise the kids. And I quickly realized that even if I was doing, you know, two or three hundred jobs a year... um, and the money was okay. I I also felt like I don't want to be hustling so much and working this hard all the time to wrestle up business and to always be drawing and so on. So I decided to change my business model. And instead of always waiting for people to call me and to ask me to do work, I would instead create work first and then try and find a market for it. And so that was my new strategy. And so I started just kind of blindly creating things and trying to sell them. Um, and The first thing I did was start a little blog of daily figure drawings that were these quick, gestural, but highly stylized drawings of figures. I enjoyed working that way. They were quick. It was an exercise and it was something I could sort of brand as my own thing.
0: Mm.
1: And it became pretty popular and I got, you know, following and stuff. So I turned it into uh, a little shop with calendar and things like that and T-shirts and, you know, it's not like I sold a ton, but I started to sell things with these images on them. And that gave me the confidence to realize that, okay, you know, this, this new business model could work. So I poured a lot more energy into making it work. And one thing I did was I took that style and I marketed it to all my existing clients. And what was good about it was I was able to do that kind of work much more quickly than the other kind of work I was doing. And yet I would still get the same fee. So that was good. I could gang up a lot more jobs. It was more enjoyable. I really just love drawing that way. And it had a, a, a look to it that was unique and very ownable. So from there, I, I then decided I'd try something completely different and make iPhone games because this was, let's like, <laughs> say, 2009. Yeah. And iPhone games were really kind of not yet as big as they are now. I mean, the market wasn't saturated yet. So I just did a little scan of what was out there and everything was very colorful and sort of arcade looking. So I decided to make a black and white game that was very quiet just to make it stand out. I hired a really wonderful app developer out of uh, Ireland. Thanks to Twitter, I found him. And um, (laughs) he and I worked for just two weeks and made the game. And I think my total upfront investment was about $1,600. And um, because the game looked so different and played differently, and because I also had a marketing spin on it, which was that it was a game to improve your memory. And i had even had this validated by a professor at a university here in town. I asked, you know, could this be used for um just to improve memory or to at least work out memory and he said yes, so I said, okay, good. I've got scientific proof that this is something. <laughs> and then I, I wrote a press release and had it um distributed to all the places that write reviews about iPhone games at the time. I created some paid ads for it. You know, I really went all out for it. Spent another four or five hundred dollars to try and make it work. And um I got lucky and Apple featured it on the homepage of the iTunes Store. I think just because it was so different and I, you know, I created a website for it and made it very professional looking and everything. So within the first month, um, I earned about $23,000 in, in sales. And, um, that was one of those moments where I had this light bulb go off and thought, okay, you know, I, I need to be more than an illustrator. I need to be something that's just, I I want to, I want to create stuff. Drawing is still a part of it, but really what I need to look at is reaching a much larger audience than who I was reaching when I was just drawing pictures for money, you know?
0: That's amazing. So partly that is actually driven by the fact that you had a kid, the fact that you you wanted to be able to bring in an, you know more money but also spend more time with them, right?
1: Now that's the theory. Of course, it w- always winds up that I spend more time on work than I want no matter what I do. Um, <laughs> I always think, oh, this is going to be the thing that, no matter what it is I'm working on, I'll say, well, okay, this is definitely a project – like the Photoshop brushes, which we can get to later. Um, I think okay, this is gonna be this automated thing, but nothing's ever automated. It always requires it's like a plant, you're just constantly watering it. Um but yeah, that was the that was at least the reasoning behind why I started changing my yeah. business model. And um
0: I just wonder whether you would have even had that motivation were it not for having the kids. You know, like you might have just kept going with what you were doing.
1: Oh, sure. You know? Yeah, no. Having having children I yeah. I think, I think Most of the decisions I make with my business are based on fear, (laughs) which is, I don't know, I guess that's just a natural animal thing, but, um, (laughs) or it's a survival thing. It's like, I'm thinking always what's going to happen five years from now, where are things moving? And I'm trying to always sort of look into the future a little bit. And of course I have no idea, but, um, I think just having that mentality that was helpful for a freelancer to not rest on your laurels and not, if business is really good, then it's safe to assume that that could change. Also illustration is kind of a fashion business in a way where these trends come and go with styles and so on and um you know things could be really painterly and heavy in that area for uh you know 5 or 6 years and then suddenly they go really graphic again and really flat color and simple shapes or shape based art and then suddenly they come back they come back to really intricate drawing and that's really hot for a while and anyway so i i try to avoid getting locked into any one way of working. And um, so, yeah, I was afraid, not in this sort of, you know, cowering in a corner kind of way, but I was thinking about making sure that I wanted my children to have a comfortable life. And um, what would be a way to make that happen without, you know, killing myself, drawing all the time and and worrying about deadlines and worrying about, is somebody going to call me next year? You know, I don't want to think about that stuff if I can avoid it. So.
0: So you've you created the app. This is 2009. Mm-hmm. So so it's you and Angry Birds, uh, basically. <laughs> and I mean, you've got a lot of success, really, with an iPhone app. So I'm guessing the, the temptation is to keep going with
1: that. Yeah. So, you know, of course, I thought, oh, wow, easy money. I'm going to keep doing this. So then I and this is good. I always have these good lessons that smack me back into reality where <laughs> um, I thought, well, I'll just make a much better game than that. And uh, I did. I made a much better game. But, you know, you have to always factor luck into the equation. And even though the game, the second game I made, which is called Hot Plates, was much more playable, much better graphics, and you could play it for a much longer time and not, you know, tire of it. Um, None of that mattered because Apple didn't highlight it. You know, with the thousands of games that come out every month, you have a team of people at Apple who... Just look, and they say, oh, let's highlight this. And if they highlight it, you're going to get a lot of sales. If they don't, you're either going to have to spend a ton of money and time on marketing it yourself, or you may as well just say, well, on to the next. So that's what happened. I made a game that I was really happy with. I made my money back on it, and then a tiny bit of profit. But at the end of the day, it was basically a five-month period of time that I worked on it where um, I didn't get that time back. You know, I got some of the money back, but... And of course, during that time, I was taking on other jobs and things like that to make sure everything was good. But I quickly realized that iPhone games could be profitable, but were not going to be the way I was going to make my living. So I went back to the drawing board, haha, and decided to come up with some other ideas. (laughs) And the first idea I had was, well, why don't I just tell all my clients, especially the agencies, that I can now make them an iPhone game? And that's what I did. So that was a good choice. They already knew who I was. They already trusted me. To do good work for them. And so within the span of a year, uh, Dennis, the, the gentleman with whom I made the first two games, he and I partnered up and worked on a whole bunch of projects for clients. And it was much better money than illustration, that's for sure. Um, so for a year there, I was an illustrator and also a game and app designer with Dennis doing all the development work. And um, that went really well. Remember, this was, again, 2010, around that time. I know this doesn't seem like that long ago, and it wasn't, but things have changed so fast. In 2010, every company out there was coming out with an app to just jump on the bandwagon. And so we took advantage of that. I I think that's another thing I should mention is that I'm trying to always carefully pay attention to pop culture and to trends and things like that and see, is there some way as an illustrator or an artist I can take advantage of this trend and make some money while it's happening, you know, and and that was what that was what made sense for me with the apps at the time. And, and a lot of them did take me up on it. And um, that's how we got some work. And it was, it was just good timing, you know,
0: but really Um, smart. So you're going to the people you have a relationship with, and then suggesting that they sell it on to their clients.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it was for some of them something they were already doing, but they were glad to have me as a resource, because rather than go try and hire someone they never worked with they could just say to me well we already know who you are we've already worked with you look we have this thing in development can you give us a quote and dennis and i being that it's just two of us and we worked very efficiently and very well together would give them really good quotes and it was easy to get work so yeah just worked out for a little while there and then but you know again these things change quickly so that just that business started to kind of fade away and i also wasn't doing much to promote it um I wanted to get back to making art somehow, so I had to think of something else.
0: Whoa! okay. Before you tell us where you went to next, let me remind you that this episode is supported by the podcast host. So do go and say hi to Colin and his team. They are waiting to help you build your podcast. Maybe you've not even started one yet, or maybe you already have one, but you want to grow it, monetize it, grow your audience, show the love, whatever. They have courses at all different levels. They even have one-on-one mentorship. They have mastermind groups. They have free resources resources and of course stuff you can pay for and they do an excellent podcast as well which is worth checking out Uh, so yes it's a no-brainer I think if you're remotely tempted to get a podcast up and running for your freelance business or for your hobby, then do go take a look. The podcast host, there's a link via beingfreelance.com. And like I've said a few times before, I would genuinely love to hear what you get up to if you do start a podcast. You've heard me bang on for long enough. I'd love to hear what you're up to as well as your business evolves. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to. Do do get in touch. Let me know, won't you? Um, speaking of things of evolving. (laughs) Back to you, Carl. So after the apps, what were you thinking next?
1: Yeah, so that was when I decided to try and start selling digital products. And at first I thought, um, and I'm glad I didn't do this, but at first I, I noticed that people were starting to sell WordPress themes and the Society6 thing was taking off, which is this website where you can sell an image printed on pretty much anything, you know, pillows and blankets and whatever. And I I do have a society six page. I just am terrible about marketing it. Um, anyhow, so I thought, okay, maybe I'll make some WordPress themes or maybe I'll make, um, I'll try and make a font, you know, or, and the answer was always just there in the background. I just hadn't paid attention to it. And, um, I'm actually going to give a talk about this at icon, the illustration conference this summer. I'm going to touch on the fact that you may be you may already be an expert at something and not realize it, um, like an accidental expert, which is what I want to talk about. And um, I'd been making Photoshop brushes for myself for various projects when I would need to emulate some kind of natural media. Uh, and I'd been making these brushes since 2003 when we had this project to do for Krispy Cream Donuts. <laughs> we had to do an annual report and illustrate it for them, and the CEO wanted it to look like kind of acrylics on wood. on wood panel and we had a very short deadline and I just made some brushes in Photoshop that would kind of do what I needed them to do and slapped on a wood texture. And when we were all done with the project, he asked if he could buy the originals. And so that was, that was a good sign that we had successfully done this, you know, the, the illusion was successful. And anyhow, I just got kind of addicted to that. And for my own purposes was always just fiddling around with making brushes. And, um, People might people who were illustrator friends of mine would sometimes ask to borrow them. I'm not sure you can borrow them, but they would ask me, "Can you send me some of your brushes? I want to try them." And I would always say, "Sure, no problem." And finally, I, I just realized why am I not selling these? You know, instead of going and trying to learn how to make a WordPress theme or make a font or something, you know, talk about a great digital resource: Photoshop brushes. You know, and I, I thought, you know, there's probably going to be a good hundred or two hundred people out there who like me really love emulating natural media in Photoshop. So I'll sell some of these and then I'll move on. And that's not what happened. You know, it. it's now how I spend the bulk of my time working on this business. That's amazing.
0: So, 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 so there you are. So you've been doing it for years. Finally, you twig.
1: And, w- and when was that? In 2013, I released my first set. It was just 25 brushes. I'm, I don't want to say anything bad about my own product, but I, um, I'm not, I'm not that really not that thrilled with that first set. I mean, it was really just an experiment. I was just throwing them out there to see if it would work. Um, it all happened in the span of literally about six hours. I, um, I went on Twitter and I said, Hey, does anybody out there know of a good, uh, website to sell digital stuff that you make, you know? and, this guy Corey Godby, who's a really talented illustrator, um, I I saw him mention Gumroad, so I checked him out, and it looked extremely easy to set up a shop. So I set up a shop, and it took about ten minutes, you know. Then I gathered together. I had a list of like two hundred brushes in my uh, that I'd made, you know, that just sitting around, and I narrowed it down to twenty five of what I thought were some, you know, it was a good little selection of tools. I went to QuickTime and just turned on screen capture. And made a silent film of me just fiddling with those brushes in real time, you know, one after another. This is caveman stuff, you know, n- nothing fancy. I put the video up on the, as the, as the main image or featured, um, whatever media for the, the shop. And I sold the brushes as a zipped file for five bucks, thinking, you know, maybe some people will, will jump on this. And I, I, um, Made a little announcement on Twitter and Facebook and Tumblr, and I that was it. And so I sat back, messed around with some illustration jobs. I'm sure for the rest of the day, I can't remember exactly. But I got home that night, logged into Gumroad, and uh, I think it was, I don't know, like twenty or thirty people had bought them. <laughs> I was ecstatic. I thought, oh my god, this is fantastic, you know. But you know that that was that was nothing because at the end of the week, I made over fifteen hundred dollars. Um, I, I just couldn't believe it. So I realized, you know, this is, this is the lesson. The lesson I took away from it was if you have a job doing something and you have a thing that makes your job a lot easier. And for me, that's really good quality brushes. I can work quickly and emulate any media I want. Why on earth would you assume that you're alone and that the other people who are doing the job that you do wouldn't also want that resource, you know? So it seems obvious, but to me, it wasn't obvious at all until I actually went through the motions of doing it. You know, I, once I had done it, I it seemed to me like, why haven't I been doing this all along? You know, so so I had a choice to make. Then I decided, you know, I could either let them sit there and and do fine, you know, selling you know thirty, forty bucks a day or whatever, and that was amazing to have a little passive income, but a great feeling. Or I could turn it into an empire and, and I opted for the latter. You know, I decided to really go for broke and become the leading authority on what a Photoshop brush is, what a good Photoshop brush is. And um, I, mean, I don't think there was such a thing. No, I, I know there wasn't any kind of thing like that. I, I'm now that person, but I, I sort of invented this job title because i wanted to i felt like you know and i could have failed miserably but um so
0: how did your brush empire as you called it um <laughs> evolve from there and did you do it all yourself you, you know like when it comes to building the e-commerce and the website and all of that like is it you or did you bring other people on board to help you as well
1: no i mean the, the development of the brushes and the marketing of the brushes and the testing you all know, that's 100 percent me um so no, it's me. And that's you know, it's time consuming. I do all the customer service emails. I probably spend now a good two hours every day just answering emails from customers. I wish it were not so. I wish I could take that time and use it in some other way, but it's just the only way I know how to do it. Um
0: and all of like the, the web design and everything. No no so
1: so for the first almost two and a half years, I I just used the gumroad.com site as my, that's where I sold them. Um, I also have them for sale on creative market because that's a great marketplace for me to reach a whole new audience. Um, but I wasn't, it wasn't branded in a way that I was happy with. And so I hired a friend of mine who lives in LA and he's just one of these great people to work with. I love him. And uh, he has two business partners and the three of them Um, took a design that I made in Photoshop and turned it into what is currently the website Um, just using WordPress. It's, it's, it's not too complicated on the back end, but you know, I could never have done it on my, on my own. I I don't have the skills. Um, And they also did some really smart, smart stuff to make it very quick for me to update it. And um, yeah, so now it feels branded. You know, if you go to kylebrush.com, it feels like a company, you know, it doesn't feel like a guy who threw some HTML up there, you know?
0: Mm. Now, I loved it. There's a real, although it sounds like there's always been a real entrepreneurial side to you. Like you're not, a, you know, you're looking for the opportunity. You're willing to take a chance and invest money, you know, to, 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 to try and make it work.
1: Yeah, not always. I mean, there, it took me a long time to be comfortable with the idea of spending money to make money. Um, but now I'm, very big fan of that approach um, because every time I've taken money out and decided, okay, I'm going to spend some money to do this the right way rather than torture myself trying to figure out how to do it the wrong way 10 times in a row and waste a lot of time, it's always paid off so much, you know?
0: And that's not the end of the story by the sounds of it because you mentioned. You've mentioned speaking. I can see from com that this training has has emerged as well. Yeah, that's so,
1: something. I'm, the training is coming at the end of the summer. I'm building some really good tutorials for people and how I use the brushes and how they were designed to be used so that they can get the most out of them. Um, I'm also, well, there's some things I, I, I can't talk about, unfortunately, because of non-disclosure agreements, but I, I'm doing some consulting with some some great people um, about building better digital tools. I've had lots of some just some really wonderful opportunities come up as a result of this business, not having nothing to do with my illustration work. Which sometimes, like I said earlier, when before we started recording, um, uh, it's a bit of a blow to my ego sometimes as an artist to not be known for making for drawing anymore so much, uh, even though I still continue to do illustration work for lots of people. It's just not something I think that I'm as well known for as the brushes. In fact, I know I'm not. So that's that's just something that I have to be okay with. And that's fine, you know?
0: Yeah, but at the heart of that brush is your art and your illustration, right? And um, when you're still getting freelance work, cause you, so you just said that you're still doing freelance illustration, are you pitching for work, you know, like putting yourself out there now? Uh, or is it people coming to you?
1: Well, I'm sorry to say that in the last calendar year the brushes have taken up so much of my time that I haven't done a lick of self promotion but I'm glad to say that even without doing any I think the years I spent building up a client base have paid off to where I got enough work from people all year long who have worked with me in the past that my illustration business was still fine you know um it didn't grow with, and that's and that's something that I also struggle with coming to terms with which is that you know I had growth in my illustration business every year since I started and last year was the first year where there was no growth it was completely flat and at first I was sort of sad about it but then I thought well that's crazy to be sad about that when I didn't do self promotion and also I spent so much time on building this brush business so um so I'm glad that people didn't totally forget me um <laughs> I, I also though have to be careful and realize that if I continue this doing this for too long without doing more promotion and, and reminding people that, yes, my first love is illustration, then certainly I'll stop getting work and I'll have to really hustle to get it back. Um, so mm. it's a balancing act. Um, but I will say that the greatest thing about the brushes and it, of course, you know, the income and the, the business is very exciting. And there, there's a million things I love about it, especially seeing artists that I I'm so much in love with her who are heroes of mine actually buy them and then use them for a project. That just blows my mind. But, um, but really the greatest thing that came out of it was I got to realize this lifelong dream of doing a picture book for kids, you know, a children's, a children's book, which is something I've always dreamed of doing ever since I was a kid. And I think the only reason I was even able to do it was because I was able to take time off, you know, three months to make the art for the the book that I I wrote on um, that's coming out at the end of July Um, because I was relying on the brushes, the income from the brushes during those three months, and not taking on any any other illustration work. Uh, So that was really great.
0: Congratulations! So this is please say please. Yes,
1: yes, yeah.
0: Wonderful. So so was that like a side project? Like, had you? You know, like because this is your first one, I presume you hadn't pre-sold it or anything like that. So you took three months off to work on a passion project, sort of thing, or
1: no? I had I had already sold the book was sold through. I I, I have this really wonderful agent for picture books named Laurie Abkemeyer and she um I found her through social media, um, which is amazing, and sent her some samples of work and asked if I could send her a dummy for a book I've been thinking about, and that was Please Say Please, and this was. About two years ago, um, I sent her the dummy, which is just a sketched, you know, a really rough sketch of the book along with the manuscript. Um, and she liked it and agreed to be my agent. And she was able to sell it to Scholastic, which is just an amazing thing. Um, mm-hmm. And so once that happened, I thought, OK, if, if the only way for me to make the deadline to to get all this art done and make it something I really am proud of and not something I rush through, I have to not take on Uh, uh, even, you know, an ounce of, of work from anyone else. And I never would have been able to do that um, without the brushes. There's just no way Um, because being a first time author illustrator, the advance I got on the book was not very much. And it certainly wasn't enough to pay for what wound up being about five months worth of solid work, you know, um, and to still feed my family and everything. But fortunately, Just giving the brush business a little bit of water, so to speak, um, while I was doing the picture book work, you know, just doing a a little image here or there to market it or, you know, doing a Facebook ad here or there was just enough to keep it generating enough income during that time for me to do that work. It was it was really, really great. So,
0: Wow. Good for you, man. You're clearly very motivated.
1: Motivated by fear. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I think you said earlier not resting on your laurels. You're like you're still, uh, although you 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 did say that that's always been a dream to to do a picture book.
1: Oh yeah, that's I that's and that's something I just want to do forever. I hope if there's some way that I can just do that, I would uh, that would be my dream is to just do nothing but write and illustrate. So have we reached? where you are now if you see what i mean because you've just said that's about to
0: come out I'm, <laughs> but uh, i don't know you might be about to say yeah but anyway then i discovered that
1: snapchat has <laughs> existed and well there are a couple of things i'm working on now that i well it's funny you mentioned snapchat this is sort of similar but um i'm interested in starting to do some live streaming and so i have to just see where's the best way to do that um and i'm doing an adobe creates live stream soon
0: is that where you've contacted them or they've come knocking
1: no no they've they've offered me these opportunities which is wonderful i i'm really happy to say that one of the goals in creating these tools was to get on adobe's radar and i've i've certainly done that and we've had a really great relationship they're they're really and they they even invited me to this just absolutely inspiring summit a month ago in New York with some other people who I really admire, some artists from around the world who just do amazing things. And we got to um, explore some new media things with them. And um, that was just, that was great. And it was amazing. So um, that's all again, thanks to this brushes stuff. So yeah, all these things have happened that were never planned, but um, at the same time, I think, you know, in some ways you make your own luck by by just being persistent with things and it doesn't always pay off i've had many many times where i've thought of an idea and thought oh this is going to be the one this is going to be great and it doesn't go anywhere so but i think if you just keep keep having ideas and and trying to take them somewhere then eventually hopefully something happens
0: what would you say have been the biggest challenge challenges of of being freelance
1: well there's there's just no guarantee that you're going to make it, you know, I mean, not that there's a guarantee you're going to make it if you have some kind of full-time employment, but there is that comfort when you have a job that you know you're going to show up at a place. And as long as you do what's asked more or less, um, and you're not rude and terrible to work with, you know, you remain employed and you, you get health insurance and whatever else, and you get a paycheck. And there's something about that routine that is pretty comforting. And I think it can give you a little bit of peace of mind, but it's not for everyone. And I, I learned it wasn't for me when I worked at a, at a design firm. I love those people. They're, they're all wonderful people, but the repetition of all that, um, was getting me pretty down. So I guess the biggest challenge is not having that. Um, but that in some ways is also the, the biggest benefit. It, it forces you to, to think a lot and, and to be creative and not to be boring, you know. <laughs> um, it forces yeah. you to pay attention to the world, too. You, you, you kind of have to stay engaged. You can't really check out, you know.
0: No, it's it's all great. I tell you what, this, this feels like an epic long... Um... <laughs> I know, I, I, I talk a lot, sorry. No, yeah. no. Don't apologize. It's brilliant. You know, the the story of somebody's freelance journey, if you like, it mm. probably takes takes about five minutes because <laughs> it will be like, I left my job and then I did this. Whereas <laughs> whereas you've continually evolved, thought of different ways to, to push it, which is inspiring. So I always do this thing where I ask for three facts about yourself, make two true, one a lie and let me figure out the lie. What have you got for me, Carl?
1: OK, so here we go. First one. Uh, Mick Jagger's roadie drove me to Montpellier, France when I was 21, and I was hitchhiking across the country. Right. When I was 16, I was in a tuk-tuk race with some friends in Bangkok, and we nearly got killed. And I once spent an evening, when I was in my 30s, doing figure drawing with Tori Amos. Whoa. Okay. You were
0: hitchhiking and Mick Jagger's roadie just happened to stop. Yep. And then just what? Told told you, oh yeah, no, I'm just on my way to meet Mick? Or like, is there a...
1: No, I didn't know who he was. In fact, I was with a friend. We were two Americans doing an exchange, you know, that year in college. And um, we decided to just skip final exam week because uh, we knew we were going to fail and decided instead to just uh, hitchhike. And um, we had a series of rides from Ren, the northwest coast, on down to Montpellier, where another one of my friends was studying. And uh, one of the people who picked us up was a roadie for Mick Jagger uh, in the 80s.
0: You had a tuk-tuk race when you were 16 in Bangkok, where you n- nearly killed yourself. Yeah. Tuk-tuks, they're like the motorized... Uh, yeah, they're three wheels type They have things, one right? wheel in
1: front, two in the back And a little, you sit yeah. with no seat belt, um, And no sides It's wide open <laughs> And you go at the same speed as a regular car Flying down the highways in Bangkok It's probably one of the most dangerous ways to travel oh. And we had two tuk-tuks and asked um, the, the drivers, We are four of us So two in each tuk-tuk Asked the drivers if we paid them extra If they would race <laughs> And of course they did. Of course.
0: And you ended up doing figure drawing with Tori Amos.
1: Yep. How? Uh, Well, this is one of those weird situations where I was in Los Angeles where I'm almost never in LA, but I had a friend who had a friend and they were just getting together for one evening of uh, quote unquote uh, drawing. And um, one of these people who came was... She looked familiar to me and just was sitting and drawing like everybody else. And we had a live model who was paid by the hour, you know, just like you do for a regular classroom situation. And people sitting around sipping wine. And um, I kept wondering, is that Tori Amos? And I never had the guts to go up and ask her anything. But um, when the whole thing was over, I did ask, you know, by the way, you know, there's this woman that was sitting there the whole time who looked just like Tori Amos. And I love Tori Amos. And I said, yeah, that's her. And she comes to these things every now and again because she just loves the sketch.
0: Wow. You could have had an original Tori Amos picture <laughs> if you'd have been quick enough. Yep. Um Oh, God. Unless, of course, that's a lie. I don't know. Um, tuk Tuk, Mick Jagger, 16, 16, year olds in tuk- Oh, God, I don't know. Mick Jagger's a lie.
1: <laughs> that's the true one. <gasps> Very God. cool French guy.
0: OK, I'm going to take another stab, but the Tuk Tuk is made up.
1: No. That was Shit. so I grew up in Whoa, so hang on, Tori Amos never happened. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> that was so believable. And to pick Tori Amos. Brilliant. I thought that would be the most believable because yes. you know, why wouldn't why wouldn't someone come and do some figure drawing? Who knows, you know?
0: <laughs> but the TikToks was true.
1: Yeah, I, I grew up overseas. Uh, my parents were overseas school teachers, and when I lived in Taiwan my last three years of high school, um we went to Pat Pong, which is this very bad, you know kind of dangerous and seedy place full of sex clubs and things, whatever. Uh, we were 16 it's terrible. (laughs) So, um, but really just a lot of fun and nobody got hurt. But yeah, we did this, this thing where we decided to race tuk-tuks and, um, the, my friends who were in the other tuk-tuk almost rear ended a truck, you know, going 60 miles an hour or whatever it was. And uh, it was it was not fun after that. We immediately thought, okay, let's never do that again. That was a stupid <laughs> idea. But. Man,
0: oh, God, geez, you've had a good life. Um, <laughs> if you could tell your younger self one thing about being freelance, what would that be?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. Um, one thing I would say is for sure is is make sure you do business um on paper, you know have have contracts signed for jobs. make sure you read over any um, contracts that are sent your way for jobs um, and and just make sure you don't get taken advantage of because I made a few mistakes early on with some rather large jobs where I wasn't paid enough or was uh, I, I gave away rights I should never have given away and things like that. So I would say, yeah, do your paperwork that's that sounds a little too practical doesn't it um, no
0: but it we hadn't touched upon it and it's it, it is an interesting thing to hear i think probably especially if you're doing something where you're create, you know like an illustrator where you're creating something like you say the rights to it you know being aware <laughs> yeah. of
1: that yeah for sure and and just yeah I, I mean everyone's trying to get something for nothing so watch out and you know, people send contracts all the time that are full of rights grabs and um it's important to be on the lookout for those, especially when you're younger and just getting started. You have to just pay attention and don't be afraid to ask for more money um, or ask the advice of someone who is has been working longer and knows the value of what a certain um, kind of work is. You know, I think it's always dangerous when we have every year a flock of new graduates going out into the world and illustrating. And then if someone offers them a nominal fee to do some work, they say yes right away because they're excited to get the work without actually wondering, wait a second, is that the right fee for this kind of work? And what happens then is you just basically, if you do it enough times, you just establish a new acceptable fee for what had traditionally been worth twice as much, you know, and that becomes what art directors and other clients assume is the new norm and that's bad for all of us.
0: Very true. Kyle, it's been so good talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Don't forget check out beingfreelance.com where you will find a link to everything that Kyle's up to both with his uh, illustration and his brushes and uh, and more beyond and reach out to him on Twitter and uh, by the way as as um s- somebody who makes videos I really like the way you use video as well. It's oh, um, that's thank you. As a selling tool, it's uh, both selling yourself <laughs> getting your personality across in your about video, for example.
1: You know, I did that because I wasn't in New York and other, you know, I I just don't want people not to know who I am. And I found that regular boilerplate stuff on people's websites so boring and it all sounds the same anyway. So I just thought instead of having that little copy, you know, Kyle's an illustrator who does this, this and this, I'd make a video and it it actually wound up being far more successful than I expected it to be um, in getting me work actually or or starting conversations with with people who I work with it was it was an eye-opener for me
0: good to hear Carl all the best being freelance
1: or being whatever the heck it is that you decide you are nowadays (laughs) thank you and I really enjoyed talking to you too Steve thanks so much
0: Wow, how about that? I know it's longer than, than I normally do, but uh, I hope you enjoyed that. And if this was your first episode, then please do check out all of the other guests at beingfreelance.com. Hit subscribe so you don't miss out because there is tons of value to be had in every single one of those guests' stories guarantee guaranteed. In the meantime, you have a great week being freelance. Take care. ta